We are again assured and comforted by the promise of the gospel that those who confess their sins and lay them before the cross of Christ have the forgiveness of their sins, not because they deserve it, but because Christ has bought it with his blood. This is our comfort as we worship God this morning. Let's now turn to our scripture reading that God would teach us this morning. Our scripture reading comes from three places in the New Testament. First from 2 Corinthians. Chapter 11. Second Corinthians 11. We'll read verses 7 through 15. speaks here of uh, Paul's attitude in receiving gifts, which is, is very closely related to our text in Philippians. Second Corinthians 11, verse 7. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted, because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia, that's the Philippians, supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So far from Second Corinthians, let's also turn to the first letter to the Thessalonians. Chapter 2. And we'll read verses 1 through 13. First Thessalonians chapter 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. For though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, 
like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you, believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So far from the letter to the Thessalonians, finally let's turn back a few pages to Philippians chapter 4. And we'll read verses 10 through 20. Philippians 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So far, the word of God. We've sung about the strength and the confidence of those who put their faith in in the Lord, the God of Israel, and now our God through Christ as well. And that's a confidence that we read about in Philippians as well, our text Uh, This morning comes from verses 10 through 13, or 11, excuse me, through 13 of chapter 4. And so let's read those verses again in preparation for hearing them preached. Philippians 4, verse 11, Paul writes, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So far, God's word. 
Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we're coming, of course, very near to the end of the letter of the Philippians, which we've been working through for several months. And in this very last part of the letter to the Philippians, you find some personal matters. Paul takes a moment to uh, express his gratitude and his appreciation for the Philippian church. We read about uh, their support for him in, in, uh, Thessal- in the letter to the Thessalonians as well as in the letter to the Corinthians. And so he has things to say thank you for. Uh, these things might seem to us like a bit of a, a private matter between Paul and, and the Philippians, and it certainly was. It was a private matter between them. Uh, and so we might be tempted to sort of skip over it because it's none of our business. This is just between them, uh, between Paul and, and the church. But we should remember that when Paul wrote these letters to the Philippians, uh, the intention was not only that they would be read there, but that they would be passed along and read in the other churches in the area. Uh, And in all likelihood, when that process would have happened, the Philippian elders themselves would have first made their own personal copy of that letter, or they would have kept the original and made a copy uh, to be shared. And it's worth recognizing that the Philippians could just as well have left out these personal matters in the copies that they made. Uh, But they thought it would be better to let the other churches hear these words as well. It's a reminder for us that even these personal matters are matters that we want to read about and think about as well. There's lessons to be learned from them. And so we can be thankful that the Philippians copied this part of the letter for us as well. Even though it deals with a personal, private matter, there's a lot in here to teach us. Uh, For one thing, it has to do with an essential part of church life, giving and receiving financial support, especially for the work of of ministry. This is something that all of us uh, take part in, and we uh, we take part in this, and we want to think about it biblically. Uh, and so that in itself is, is important um, to, to recognize. Uh, there's lessons to be learned about giving and receiving. But behind that, there are also deeper lessons about the Christian life itself. Paul weaves those in to, to his sort of uh, thank you part of the letter. Uh, even as he, he writes about something as mundane of, of a thing as financial support, we can still see the Christ-centeredness of Paul's life shining through his words. And that's important for us to notice. Um, Christians don't have to be talking about so-called spiritual things in order to share their faith in Christ. If Christ touches every area of your life, which he certainly should, then you can speak about your daily life and by so doing put Christ on display. And that's what we certainly see here with Paul. Um, in these final words from Paul, there's, there's two important lessons that stand out, all the way from verses 10 through, through 20. And what we're going to do is we're going to give each of them a, a sermon of its own. So next week we'll be back in verses 10 through, through 20 to, to see the second lesson. The first one that we want to look at this morning uh, has to do with contentment and sufficiency in Christ. You can see that very clearly in verses 11 through 13, Paul's contentment 
in Christ and Paul's sense of sufficiency in Christ. Let me first uh, then summarize and and sort of outline the passage in front of us because the the logical flow can can be a little difficult to, to grasp. In verse 10... Paul begins by simply expressing his thankfulness, uh, but he expresses his thankfulness that the way he words it is, is very important. He expresses his thankfulness for the Lord's work in the Philippians as evidenced by their concern for him. So it's not as simple as saying thank you to the Philippians. What he's really saying is thank you to the Lord Jesus for the faith you've given to the Philippians as evidenced by the generosity that they've shown towards me. And so it's ultimately, these these last verses are ultimately more of a thank you to the Lord Jesus than they are even to the Philippians. Uh, So you can see in verse 10, Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. So it's his gratitude to the Lord for the sake of the Philippians. And you can imagine what this experience would have been like for Paul. He says now at length, and of course we're so far removed that we don't know exactly what he means by that. Uh, But it's certainly not for nothing that he writes at length. It had probably been a few years since he had heard from the Philippian congregation. Uh, If you run the math on, on the missionary journeys, he planted that church in Philippi somewhere around 11 years prior to to this letter, and he did receive some support initially right after he planted uh, that church. Uh, You can see that in in verse 15, he talks about after he left Macedonia, he received support from them. And at that same time, if if you read the letter to the Corinthians, you can read about their support also for the church in Jerusalem. So they responded immediately with, with giving and with support. But at this point, Paul had been under arrest in Jerusalem and then imprisoned and then on a ship towards Rome, not to mention shipwrecked on the way there. And then he spent some time on, on some of the islands on, on the way there. And so now he's finally under arrest at Rome. And it probably had been a few years during that process, that he hadn't even heard from the Philippians. And so during this time, we we can imagine how he would have grown concerned for the Philippian congregation. He knew that there wasn't much they could do to support him while he was uh, in prison. Uh, But naturally, he would have had times as a missionary where he wondered, are they still well? Are they still giving generously, at least to the church in, in Jerusalem? Is their faith still strong. These things would have probably kept him up at night uh, from time to time. So it's not for nothing that Paul says he rejoiced greatly when he finds their revived concern for him. That that would be referring to when Epaphroditus came from Philippi to, to visit Paul in prison in Rome, and he brought along with him some gifts of, of financial support. And so Paul makes clear it's not so much the gifts that are, that are giving me cause for rejoicing, but it's the fact that all along, during this time that I didn't hear from you and I was worried about you, that all along I can see now you were still concerned for me. You were still willing and eager to support me when the opportunity comes. And that demonstrated for Paul how alive 
the faith was of this tiny Philippian church. And that, he says, that's my reason for joy. So in verse 10, he's expressing his gratitude to the Lord Jesus for giving them that faith sustained through all the years when he didn't even hear from them. Uh, Then in verses 11 through 13, which are the verses we're going to focus on, Paul stops to, to just clarify what he said, to make sure that the Philippians understand rightly uh, that his joy is not so much for the gift itself as it is uh, for the faith that's behind that gift. And, and to back that up, he, he tells them that really all along, it's not that I've been feeling in need. In fact, I've been very content through the strength that Christ has given me. That's what we want to stop then and focus on this morning, that contentment and sufficiency in Christ. So he says in verse 11, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Uh, You can see that that same uh, contentment if you look later at verse 18. He says again, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. So he wants them to know, um, I'm thankful for the gifts. Thank you for them. But I don't need the gifts in order to be content, in order to have enough. Uh, there's There's at least two reasons why the Philippians needed to know this, why Paul felt compelled to to let them know this. And and these are reasons why we need to know this as well. Uh, One reason is is to to recognize Paul's integrity as a minister of the gospel. He wanted the Philippians to know, and we saw the same thing in, in the Corinthians in his letter to them, he wanted them to know he wasn't doing the work of ministry for the sake of the financial gain. It wasn't a love of money that compelled him to, to speak of Christ. Uh, the reason this is so important for the Philippians to understand is because those kinds of missionaries are coming if they hadn't already come to Philippi. They certainly had come to the Corinthians, ministers who were really in it for the money. Uh, it's good for us to recognize that right from the very beginning of Christianity, uh, there were people... Uh, who preached the gospel or sometimes corrupted versions of the gospel out of greed and out of a desire for financial gain. Uh, And so Paul wanted to make sure that the Philippians could tell the difference between genuine ministers of the gospel and, and greedy charlatans who are really only in it for the money. And one of the most obvious ways that you can tell the difference between these two is that genuine ministers of the gospel will be uh, profoundly content uh, with a modest and a simple lifestyle, and that even if they have nothing at all, they will still consider it a greater joy to preach Christ, and find, they will find sufficiency in that. Uh, we need to know that, and the Philippians also needed to know that. That's the mark of a genuine minister of the gospel. There's a second reason, too, why Paul wanted the Philippians to know that he was content. Uh, And we can see this from the context of the rest of the letter to the Philippians. 
Paul also writes about his contentment in order to show the Philippians uh, his perspective on the surpassing worth of Christ. That's, of course, been the, the theme that's running through the whole letter of the Philippians, that to live is Christ, to die is gain. Uh, if I know Christ, I, I have more uh, than I'll ever need. Uh, he speaks in chapter 3 about the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Uh, so not only is knowing Christ worth more eternally than anything else on earth, but knowing Christ is also enough to sustain a life of sacrifice and service here on earth. The Philippians needed to know that because Paul knew that their time of sacrifice and their time of trial was also quickly coming. Indeed, uh, chapter 1 already indicates that some of it had begun. They had already begun to suffer. Uh, And so they needed to know uh, that, that Christ is worth more than anything that they were about to lose. And so Paul emphasizes from his perspective in prison with nothing at all, with the very likely possibility of death, Paul wants them to recognize, I feel very content in Christ. In fact, in Christ, I have strength to do all that Christ has called me to do. I can live with a lot. I can live with a little. And I want you to know that so that you can be prepared to live that way as well. So those are the the two main reasons Paul wants them to see his contentment, so they know the difference between a genuine minister and and a false minister, and so that they're ready to be content themselves. So Paul emphasizes the fact, then, that he is content. He says, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. Uh, as, as some translations put it. Um, that word secret, the secret of, of abounding and the secret of, of not having enough, the word secret isn't actually in there in, in the original Greek, but what the translations are doing is they're, they're doing their best to, to try and put into English the, the concept that Paul is, is using. When he speaks of learning... Uh, So he says, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Uh, He's using a very special word there. It's a word that doesn't occur anywhere else in in the Bible. And and it's a word that always refers anywhere else it's used in Greek to to the secret initiation rituals that happened in these these mystery religions. So you worship uh, some god. If you were to become a worshiper of this god, you would go through this secret, mysterious initiation ritual that would turn you into a worshiper of, of that God. Uh, so Paul takes that concept and he says, I've been initiated, as it were, into the secrets of contentment, into the secrets of, uh, of facing plenty and hunger. Uh, that initiation that Paul is referring to um, It refers to everything that Paul had already gone through. He wants the Philippians to know, after everything I've been through, the beatings, the imprisonments, the shipwrecks, the ridicule that he endured, if you want the full list of things that Paul endured, it's in uh, 2 Corinthians. He gives a long list of all the things that he and the other apostles uh, were going through. And he says, that's my initiation into the secrets of contentment, into the secrets of having plenty and of facing hunger. 
Something to think about for us as well. Paul saw all of those sufferings as a means that God was using to teach him what it means to be content in Christ. It's a contentment that, that so few people have in, in this world. It's, it's really a contentment that so few Christians understand because it takes a, a process of initiation. It's walking through those sufferings That's the means by which God teaches you what contentment in Christ is like. All of us want to be content. We all recognize that contentment is a good thing. A contented life is is a much happier life than a life that's full of, of covetousness. And so we should all at least be able to appreciate what a... Uh, what a precious gift contentment is. Uh, what a precious gift that is from God. But we need to recognize that there's an initiation process to contentment. You can't just want it and, and, and take it and have it. There's a process that you go through in order to know what contentment truly means. And you don't get to contentment in Christ without going through uh, that process. For Paul, that process meant losing everything that he had on earth. It meant going through all of those moments of sufferings. Uh, so Paul had gone through that, and, and the lesson that he learned from it is, is beautifully summarized in, in verse 13. He says, Having done all that, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now I want to stop and talk just for a minute about uh, this verse, uh, the way it stands. Uh, this might be one of the most well-known verses of the Bible, but it's also one of the most uh, often abused verses in the Bible. It's one of those verses you could probably find on a wall decoration in Dollarama or, or a place like that. And it's probably not there in order to reach the market of missionaries who, who are suffering in prison for the sake of Christ. It's a verse that all of us like to take for ourselves. And that desire as, as such is a good thing, but it can be an abuse of... Uh, we can sometimes abuse this verse. The truth is, this is not a promise that you can do anything you set your mind to as long as you give credit to Christ and, and maybe pray about it. Uh, that's the way that this verse is often used. I can do whatever I set my mind to as long as I'm giving credit to Christ or as long as I have Christ in my life. That's not what Paul is saying. Nor is it a promise that if you believe that Christ wants to give you something, then Christ will give it to you. That's not what Paul is saying here. Uh, just to give an example of the kind of abuse that this verse gets, uh, maybe some of you have seen the movie Soul Surfer. If you have, you can talk to the elders after. Uh, the movie is about a, a, a bikini-clad girl who gets her arm bitten off by a shark, and then after she goes through this period of depression, she, she decides to keep on pursuing a career in surfing, and, and the justification she gives for it is, I can do all things, through Christ who strengthens me, which means I can surf even if I only have one arm, as long as I'm setting my mind to it and praying about it uh, with Christ. Now, I can attest from personal experience, this hasn't worked for me even with two arms. But more seriously, the fact is we shouldn't do this with Scripture. This isn't what Paul means. 
This isn't a promise that you can do anything you want as long as you give Christ the credit for it or as long as you look to Christ for the strength to do it. That may sound inspirational, but it's not the promise that's being given here. Paul's point is that he can do all that Christ has commanded him to do and called him to do, trusting that Christ will give him the strength to do it. And we want to recognize he's writing specifically with respect to contentment, with respect to having the ability to live uh, with nothing. His point is, I can do all these things, namely live with little or live with much or have hunger or have plenty. I can do all those things and whatever Christ has called me to do through the strength that Christ has given me. Uh, The fact that this verse has been taken up out of its context and, and applied to just about anything we set our minds to do, including things like surfing, uh, and, and things that Christ hasn't called us to do, the fact that we modern Christians are willing to do that with Scripture uh, raises into question our view of Scripture. What do we read Scripture for? Do we read Scripture in order to pull out pieces of inspiration? Or do we read Scripture for Christ to show us uh, what it means to know him? Are we okay with, with taking Scripture uh, and, and reading into it the application that, that works for our life without considering whether this is really what, what was in, intended? Are we okay with using God's Word in that way? Or do we rather go to Scripture in order to hear what God would speak to us? So it raises into, into, our, into question our view of, of Scripture, because this simply isn't what Paul means. Uh, and that reading of this verse opens this verse up to the worst kinds of abuse. In fact, the saddest thing about this is that this has become a favorite verse for the very people that Paul is warning the Philippians about, preachers of the prosperity gospel. It's, it's the worst irony that uh, this is the go-to verse for preachers of the prosperity gospel. And they take it to mean, you decide what you want, and then you believe that Christ will give it to you, and then Christ will do so. That's the opposite of what Paul is teaching. Uh, in fact, it's teaching discontentment with what Christ has given us. Uh, the argument that they make, and I've seen this done, especially in the context of, of the mission fields in, in Brazil, is that if you believe that Christ wants to give you uh, a new job or, or a promotion or a new car or, or a house, if you believe that Christ wants to give those to you and you exercise enough faith, you can essentially force Christ's hand. You can make Christ give it to you. And what that is, is it's teaching that you, you can and even should be discontent with what Christ has given you, and you should use Christ as the basis for that discontentment. It's why uh, when, you, when you drive down the streets of Brazil, uh, more, more often than not, you'll see a sticker on the back of the car that says something to the effect of, this was a present from Christ. It's the idea that I prayed, I believed, and therefore Christ gave it to me. And it's an insult to the people that have prayed and and have believed and have lived like Paul with nothing for the sake of Christ 
and aren't looking for that car and often instead receive a great number of, of afflictions. It's saying, it's your fault that you received these because you didn't exercise the same faith that I did. Christ wants to give these to me. I guess he doesn't want to give them to you. Uh, and what that does is it makes Christ the means to our own selfish and worldly ends. And so it does the opposite of glorifying Christ. It glorifies the things that we want. It glorifies that new job or car or house. And it uses Christ simply as a means to that end. And, and that, that use of this verse is so prevalent and it's tragic because what it ultimately shows that in so much of modern Christianity, people and people's desires are big. And God is very small in their minds. And so God's word can be twisted and used and abused in order to get what we want for ourselves. It's suggesting that God exists like a a heavenly Santa Claus in order to give us what we need, in order to help us achieve our dreams or realize our potential. Think of how, how backwards that is, especially from the perspective of Paul. Paul saw himself as joyfully, eagerly dying, laying down his dreams and laying down his life because he saw the glory of Christ as more worth living for than anything else he could possibly uh, strive for. In modern Christianity, it's so often the other way around. It's using Christ in order to achieve my hopes and dreams. Well, that, that simply is not Christianity. Christianity is not using Christ as a means to our ends. It's Him using us for His glory and in the process giving us a deeper joy than any earthly possessions or dreams could ever give us. So Paul wrote this verse from the context of having given up everything in order to lay down his life to do the will of Christ. And he did so in the most sacrificial ways imaginable, with no imaginable earthly gain, suffering the loss of his freedom and facing the very real possibility of death in order to do the will of Christ. And he grounds that, if you remember way back in in chapter 2, He grounds that choice of lifestyle, that decision to lay down his life that way, he grounds that in the fact that that's the path that Christ himself took, laying down his life and calling us to take up our cross and follow him. That's the Christian life, and that's what Paul means when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Those all things are are quite the opposite of pursuing our dreams. Those all things are taking up our cross and following him. So we should be very cautious to to not simply pick up a verse from Scripture and, and apply it to ourselves without listening carefully to what God is teaching us in that verse within its context. There are indeed many things that Christ promises us that he will give us the strength to do. Things like defending our faith in the hour of persecution. He told his disciples that they would have that strength. Peter writes about it in in 1 Peter as well. Uh, Or overcoming temptation. Uh, we, We will not be given temptations that he will not give us the strength to overcome. 
Those are things Christ promises to give us the strength to do. Uh, But he doesn't promise us that he will enable us to achieve whatever dreams uh, might pop into our heads. No, instead he calls us to follow him in obedience and in love and service towards one another for his glory because that's a cause worth living for and worth dying for. And if we live that life, we can trust that he will exalt us in his ways and in his time. So with that caution then about this verse, let's consider what Paul does mean by having learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. What does he mean when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? There's a knowledge aspect uh, to this, this secret, if you want to call it that, a secret. There's a knowledge aspect to it, and, and there's also an experiential aspect to it. And you can see that right here in the context of, of this letter. If you look back to chapter 3, verse 7, he tells the Philippians, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. That's the, the knowledge aspect. Uh, It's knowing that our inheritance in Christ is far greater than anything we might be deprived of here on earth. Uh, Paul believed that, and, and it was that knowledge, that belief, that enabled him to do all things through the strength of Christ. He was able to give up his former life. He was able to give up the opportunities he would have had as, as an influential person. And we should recognize that about Paul. He, he, he was in a position of great influence as someone trained in the schools of the Jews as well as raised in the schools of, of the Romans. He had a great, bright future ahead of him, and he laid it down in order to serve Christ because of what he knew, that the, the inheritance we have in Christ is worth far more. That's the, the knowledge aspect. There, there's also an experiential side to, to this secret, and, and I believe that's why Paul uses this strange phrase of, of initiation into the secrets of contentment. Uh, for that, that knowledge that, the Christ, that, that Christ is worth more than anything we have on earth, for that knowledge to sink in and go from our heads to our hearts and our wills and our motivations... God has to take us through some low points, through uh, what Scripture often refers to as, as valleys, as, as dark places. We don't often fully understand the surpassing worth of Christ until everything else that we have is taken away from us. Uh, for Paul and for many Christians, and I know that, uh, that some of you know who those Christians are, it's those moments of being deprived of everything that we have or facing the loss of things that we've considered too, too precious to be able to let go of and then having those things taken away from us. It's when God takes us through those things that we're initiated into the secrets of contentment. It's discovering that Christ is sufficient for me and indeed more than sufficient, that he is all that I need and more. As Psalm 23 says, uh, my, my, my cup overflows even though he was in the valley of death. He recognized that what we have in God through Christ is, is so much more than anything we could lose that we can speak of our cup as overflowing because of the abundance that we have in God. 
And so it's when we, di- when we discover the weight of God's glory in Christ, it turns our life on its head. We discover that there's something worth living for that's much, much better than anything I could live for here on earth, that's far more worthy of living for than myself, and that turns our life on its head. It means we can live for Christ's glory even while being deprived of everything else, and we can say, I haven't sacrificed anything. Those are the famous, famous words of uh, John Patton, the missionary in the New Hebrides, who, who truly lost everything. And he spoke of, uh, of times when, uh, over, over his career when he had lost uh, so much, and, and he would say in the end, still, I haven't really lost or sacrificed anything Why can he say that? Because he understood that what we have in Christ is far worth, far more worth living for, is far greater than anything we could possibly have on earth. It's greater, indeed, than ourselves. That's what Paul means then when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that is the, if you want to call it, the secret of contentment. It's knowing the surpassing worth of Christ and experiencing it as we follow him and take up our cross and deny ourselves. It's experiencing his presence, his strength, his support when we have nothing else left on earth. That's why Paul can write so confidently, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I'm not derailed when I'm brought low, and I'm not derailed when I have too much, because that too doesn't lead me to forsake Christ, because I know that Christ is worth so much more even than the abundance that God might give me. There's applications, of course, immediately for those who uh, receive financial support, that's the, the context of, of the letter, as well as for those who, who give financial support. Paul was writing this to uh, the Philippian church, after all, the, the ones who were giving it. And you can think of uh, women like Lydia, businesswomen who worked hard, and they had abundance. Lydia was wealthy, it says, and she knew what it meant to abound. Paul wanted to make sure that she also knew that in Christ, that abundance is ultimately nothing at all. It doesn't matter. And God could take it away, and Paul wanted Lydia to be ready for that if God should, should so do that, as he, mar- very, he, he, he very well may have done so uh, with, with the persecutions that very quickly followed in the Philippian church. The same is true, then, for us, and especially on the day we do profession of faith. Jonathan, when you stand before the congregation to profess your faith, the heart of what you're professing is that through God's word, you have come to know God's glory in Christ, through the gospel of Christ, and that having come to know that, you see that as more worthy than anything else you have in heaven or on earth. That there is nothing more worth living for than his glory. To know him and to put his greatness on display is the goal and the purpose of your life. Undoubtedly, there are trials ahead. That's why the the form for profession of faith finishes on on that point. It quotes uh, uh, 1 Peter and says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of grace will himself strengthen and, and confirm you. That's what it means to, to go through that initiation. Your life will have 
suffering. You, your life will face loss. And in a way, you can say, the sooner I face it, the better. We will all face it. We will all come to the end of our lives and we'll have to let go of all that we hold dear on this earth. In, in many cases, the sooner we endure that, the better. The sooner we learn this secret of contentment, the better. Embrace, then, and use those sufferings that God has given you to magnify the name and the honor of Christ in your life by the very means of those sufferings. And in doing so, you will discover, as Paul discovered, a very sweet contentment that far surpasses anything that your dreams, your hopes, your possessions could possibly give you here on earth. Be eager to learn that contentment so that you can confess with Paul that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen.